that works. Um, but we're going to do something, kind of take a... I've promised you over and over again that we, we would never turn the pulpit or the stage into a place of politics. We're not today. Um, but we are going to address an issue that is often looked at politically, but I don't want to look at it politically. Um, I want to look at it theologically, and I want to look at it as Jesus Christ would look at it. So we're going to talk about abortion um, towards the end of the sermon, about the middle, halfway through. So don't get up and leave yet. Just trust me. I want to put the light of the gospel and shine Jesus Christ through this issue instead of just ranting and raving and turn it into let's all make picket signs after church. That's not what we're going to do. Okay? Um, we're in Colossians. We're, in the, we're going to talk about the image of the invisible. We're going to talk about the big picture of Jesus Christ, who exactly he is. And then I want to put that in light of um, today being Sanctity of Life Sunday and it being the week that we celebrate civil rights and that we see throughout the scriptures that Jesus cared about the least of these. Um, but if we don't put it squarely, correctly, in light of the gospel, then all we are are fear-mongering Christians who think we have it all figured out. We become arrogant. Okay? We have to put it in light of Jesus Christ. And then instead of just pointing to you all different scriptures to look at, um, I'd like, because, you know, the history teacher can never take it out of the pastor. I want to look at the history of how this has happened. And I think with logic and reason married with the gospel, you only have one conclusion to come to. Okay? So let's pray for our hearts to be open, because I'm sure I've already offended a couple of you, and then we will land in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we'll talk about this. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Um, Lord, we've got some visitors in the room, and um, I pray that they would uh, be receptive too to the truth of the gospel, people that have been here for years, and that we wouldn't just be a family that fights over things, that we'd be a family that as we just sung over and over again, that we put you at the top. That it's all about you. So we should care um, about what the gospel says about issues that are all around. Not about political parties. Not about he said, she said, what it is. But let's just focus on you, Lord. How would you have us as a church respond to the truth of the cross? We love you, Jesus. Amen. So we've been in Colossians. And last week we kind of we wrapped up the prayer and thanksgiving. So we're in Colossians chapter 1. And last week we wrapped up the prayer part. We spent some time praying and what it is to pray and where we're at. Um, and then today we see the change. It's called, it, my Bible has the, I call it the cheater sections. It's got the numbers, it's got the headings, it tells you what's going on in each section. And it says the preeminence of Christ. That Christ is first and foremost in everything. So I'm going to read it all the way through and then we're going to break it down and I'm going to show you some stuff. This is Paul describing to the church in Colossus who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself of all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now, a lot of commentaries talk about verses 15 to 20 being this, well, maybe to 18. 15 to 18 or 15 to 20, that it's a hymn that's meant to be seen as a song. A song of who Jesus is. Do we read him as he's the image of the invisible? That he's preeminent, that he's first and foremost. He's the forerunner and he's the end to which we're all going towards. That he is everything. So when we say that during church, and I say it a lot, it was revolutionary about four or five years ago, when I started seeing everything in existence as this is about Jesus. Because we start making things about two different things. This is about me and my life and what I want, and then this part over here is about Jesus. So I'm going to go to church, or I'm going to have these conversations, or I'm going to have this relationship, but it's over here. And that's about Jesus. But this is about me. Um, that we, We're wrong. We should see all of life as about Jesus. That all of creation is about Him. It's about Jesus. So Paul breaks this down a couple of different ways. So we start back in 13, that the focus is on the gospel, that Jesus has delivered us from darkness. He's rescued us. 
He's come to take it all away. He rescues us. So you, you can't start talking about anything else before you talk about he came for us. We have our redemption and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And once you get that, if you really believe that, if you really believe that he stepped out of heaven to die for you, that he climbed up on the cross of his own will, they didn't put him on there. He could have, he could have walked away at any moment. He could have called down legions of angels and wiped out the whole Roman Empire. He willfully and with joy, the scriptures tell us, went to the cross. He knew his mission. He wasn't sidestepped and shocked. You can't read through the Gospels and go, I, Jesus was pretty surprised that night in the garden. He predicted it over and over and over again. He knew exactly what he was doing. So if you trust in that, then when you see Paul write these things, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that in him the fullness is present. All things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, that's all created through him and for him. We get these marriages of what we see happening after he's baptized. After he's baptized by John the Baptist, he comes out of the water and God says, I'm pleased with him. We also see marriages of John chapter 1, that Jesus is God and is the word in the flesh. That Jesus is the word in flesh. That he's preeminent. He's existed from the beginning of time. He's outside of time. And so that in Jesus, he creates it all. All things are created for him and by him. And through him, it's all held together. Last week, Doug Hickson, when he did his, the, the elder devotion before communion, he talked about this passage and how Jesus is the glue that holds everything together. I think that's the perfect illustration. I told him I was going to steal it from him and mention it again. It's the perfect illustration of what this is saying. That Jesus is the glue that holds everything together. That he's preeminent. He's the firstborn. He, he holds it together in his hand. Don't we sing songs about that when we're kids? Got the whole world in his hands kind of stuff. It's the truth. So he's talking about that there's, he's trying to address this heresy. There's a heresy that's going around in the church in Colossus that Jesus isn't God in flesh. So, I mean, think about it today. You have um, all faiths around the world. None of them cling to Jesus other than Christianity. Every other faith background, every faith practice says, here's this leader, he's really wise, really smart, and then he died. Nobody is going to a mosque and worshiping the living Muhammad. No one's going to a temple and worshiping the living Buddha. They're all worshiping dead guys. They're all worshiping idols crafted by man. Stone, wood, they're not worshiping a living God. We do. We worship, that's the, that's the delineation. That's the separator between us as believers in Jesus Christ and every other religion in the world. That we believe that God stepped out of heaven, came as God the Son, and he fully dwelt with us and lived with us. And when he died, he rose again, proving that he is God and that we have eternity with him. Every other faith denies that. That's the difference between Christians and everyone else. So you have here, he's the invisible. He's the image of the invisible. We see in Jesus all of God. I remember growing up as a kid thinking that God, the Father, was like Father Time. Long white beard, set on a... We had a weird robe. Probably didn't have a sash with the year on it that year, but that's who he was. And instead of having a clock in his hand, he had like a lightning bolt. And he would smite those who were against him. Right? A lot of us grew up that way. In church, outside of church, you felt God was mean and angry. And then God the Son comes down as Jesus. He's like that rebellious. So you would, cre- you would kind of connect it to Greek mythology. He's the Prometheus of our story. So Prometheus was the one who stole fire and brought it down to humanity and gave it to them. He was punished forever on a rock and he's chained to a rock and he has his liver eaten out every day. I don't know if you study Greek mythology, but nice, interesting story. And so Jesus is our Prometheus character. God, the father's mad and angry. Jesus stepped down to help poor little humanity. And because of what he did, then he had to suffer. So God, the father stuck him on a cross and had him stuck in the side, just like Prometheus. That is not how God, the father works. It is not who he is. In Jesus Christ, you have the fullness of God in flesh. So when you read the Gospels, you can't think, well, gosh, you know, God in the Old Testament is so mean. He's so angry. He's got so much wrath. But his son, Buddy Jesus, has got nothing but love for me. So I'm going to go with the hippie Buddy Jesus guy who walked around in sandals. 
because he's cool like that. He probably had like a Vita bus if he could, and he would just live in that down by the river, right? <laughs> Nothing, no Saturday Night Live, nobody? Okay. <laughs> and so he, that we kind of have this picture of mean, wrathful God and his rebellious son who's going to save people despite the mean wrath. It's not true. It is not true. You have the fulfillment of the promises of God found in the Messiah. So when you open up the Gospels, and you know mine has the red letters, the words of Jesus, when you read what he has to say about people, it's exactly how God the Father believes, you, believes about you. So you can't walk around going, oh, I'm going to hang out with Jesus, because God is going to be really mad. Because buddy Jesus, is, he's cool. He had long hair and he wore a robe, and that's awesome. You can't think that way. What you see is when Jesus interacts with a woman in sin at a well, he interacts with her. Does he throw shame at her or condemnation at her or animosity towards her? No, he tells her the truth. You keep going back to the same wells for something that can't satisfy your thirst. I can lead you to living water. I can bring you forgiveness. I can bring you truth. Now, go in truth, go in grace, go in mercy, but stop sinning. In Jesus, we see exactly how God the Father sees us. He sees us as broken vessels who desperately need a Savior. Who he grieves the way we live, he grieves the things we do, but he doesn't look at us and go, look at us and go, there's no way that one can ever come and live with me. Instead, he's like, why? Come on. I got the best for you. You keep digging these dry wells, and I've got rivers of living water for you. Just stop. Come be with me. Let me show you how to really live. That's exactly how God sees you. So don't separate Jesus from God. Don't separate the Trinity. That's a heresy in itself. We have a loving father who came down as as a loving son to live with us. And in him, everything is his. He's before all things. He existed before time. He's before it all. So if Christ is the originating center of creation, he's the beginning. He's the center of it all. Then he is also the end that everything's moving towards. So he existed before it all happened. He speaks it all into existence. We break it. He comes down to fix us. And then someday he's coming back to this place to redeem it and fix it right. And we get our resurrection bodies and he's correcting what was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. And we will live forever basking in the glory of the sun. So nowhere along the line of beginning of creation to the end of time, beginning our eternity with him. We just sang about singing with 10,000 reasons, 10,000 years, then forevermore. We just sang this. That you're for, it's all about Jesus. It always has been. So yes, you'll hear the word and the name of Jesus a lot around here. When you read religious articles, you read newspaper articles, you read books, and they fail to mention the name of Jesus... I wouldn't give them much credit. If they're going to talk about God and faith and religion, they never mention the name of Jesus. Do you think they believe in, that Jesus is everything? Probably not. I would just get through chapter 2 and just sit on the shelf and go, I think that's just a bad purchase. He's everything. He's also the head of the church. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything might be preeminent. So he's the head of the church. Every organizational flowchart of every church or ministry organization should have Jesus Christ at the top. He's the senior pastor. He's the one in charge. And underneath that, underneath him, is everyone he's blessed or gifted to lead. So at any time during board meetings and ministry meetings and planning meetings and strategic things, we can't function like a CEO board that says, you've got the most degrees, you've got the most experience, just please tell us what to do, oh great sage. And then like every dominion and king you set up, You just listen to this great sage. Eventually, everyone who's leading below gets mad, and they topple that sage. They bring in someone else. They'll do what they want. Right? But if you consistently put Jesus Christ at the top, every decision you make, every ministry you dig into, every life that you go speak to, every counseling session between couples, you put Jesus Christ first. Every time you talk to a child about their faith, you put Jesus Christ first. Everything's about Jesus. The church will succeed. The church will flourish and the kingdom will grow. But you can begin to make it about you. And I mentioned it earlier about the, the hoops day. It's one of the things I love about this church is this church doesn't get all fired up about 
carpet and chairs and things. Now, some people do. There's always like the type A around that gets mad. But for the most part, nobody really cares. This is a bowling alley that was in a grocery store that's now a church. So we say, hey, there's a, a women's Bible study that wants to use our facility because they don't have space. Come on, use it. There's this ministry that wants to use it. Come on, use it. Hey, we want to do this. It's here. We want to help the community and be a Red Cross shelter in place. Let's do it. Jesus is the king of the universe, and he's head of the church. He's the head of the church. So do you think the church will fail? Of course not. This one might. Hopefully not. This one might. But the church universal globally will not fail. The mission of Christ will happen. The nations will hear the name of Jesus. Every tongue and every tribe will hear the name of Jesus. He will return, and he will set up his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth, and we'll all be... All the believers will be redeemed, get new bodies, and will live forever in the presence of God. Now, does that mean there aren't bad leaders? Of course there are. Does that mean there's bad denominations? Of course there are. But you can't think of those of you that walk around with baggage from your previous churches, or from this church for that matter, it's not the fault of Jesus that that happened. It's the fault of the sinners in the church who are trying their best, or maybe trying their worst, to follow him. Don't put that on Jesus. He's the head of the church. So then, if everything's, if he's the firstborn, the first one resurrected, then everything's preeminent in him. Who else are you going to worship? Who else are you going to put your worship in? God the Son steps out of heaven, comes with us, dies on a cross, rises from the dead. Hundreds of eyewitnesses, you can look at extra-biblical sources or the Bible itself, hundreds of eyewitnesses that this man walked around alive after he's supposed to be dead. Who else are you going to worship? He made it all. He made you. He holds it all together. He died for you. He was risen from the dead for you. Who else are you going to worship? Yourself? I got this figured out. I got, all, I got this under control. I'm not going to talk to him about any of it. I got this. That's what you're going to put your faith in yourself? We continue. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That the whole fullness of God comes to dwell in Jesus. In him. And so he reconciled everything to himself on the cross. That's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. He made peace. The letters of condemnation written against you are no longer. He made peace. And you. So then we get the turn. So when you reread it out of the Bible, um, you get this turn. Paul does all this time talking about who Jesus is, and you get this turn. And you. So he spends all this time building up who is Jesus. God in flesh, redeemer of it all. Everything's for his. Everything is from him. Everything is to him. It's all for him. And then you. And you, who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of, I, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he's saying, so it's all about Jesus. Now you, you're not Jesus. I don't know if you know that or not. You're not Jesus. You're not Jesus. But you, he came for you. He came for you. You were once alienated and hostile in mind. You wanted nothing to do with him. You wanted nothing to do with righteousness. You wanted nothing to do with faith. And then he gives you the faith to believe. You're hostile in mind. But now you're not alienated. He took it all upon himself and his body and his flesh and death in order to present you holy and blameless. So when God the Father sees you, all he sees is someone rinsed clean in Jesus. He came and took all of your sin. There's no reason for you to walk around in guilt and shame if you're in Christ Jesus. He took it all upon himself. When you look at it this way, I like inductive Bible study stuff, and I do it all digitally because I'm a big nerd. You all know that already, though. When you look at the preeminence of Christ, and you see all of the Jesus imagery, he, him, 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 he, him, he, 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 him, him, right? It's all about him. It's just this him all about Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is. Then we look at the part that's about you. Because of Jesus, you're holy. 
Because of Jesus, you can continue in the faith. Because of Jesus, the gospel is heard through you. You heard it, and you're going to continue in it. So you get this big picture that it's about him. It's not about you. He wants you. He wants you near him. He wants to rescue you. But it's not about you. The glory is given to God. The glory is given to him. Now this was revolutionary for my mind. Because when I came to church, um, I was really, at 17, I was really kind of focused on finding my own way, and I'm the smartest guy around, because all 17-year-olds think they're pretty smart, right? I've got a 5-year-old that thinks that too. But So you have this, this whole world where you feel you're in charge. I'm in charge. I made these decisions. I'm choosing this. I'm going after this. It's because I'm doing it. It's about me. So I'm going to bring Jesus into my life. And I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to bring Jesus along with me. I'm going to bring him along with me, and he gets to be in my pocket. And when I need him, I'll pull him out. And instead, what we see is a life devoted to the one who it's all about. But when you get this, that it's all about Jesus, then you're willing to do anything he asks. Will you give up this profession, give up this job, walk into this, walk away from this, move all the way across the country, or maybe be called to stay right where you were born and be a townie for life. That whatever he calls on you, you're going to do. And Amber and I, we've tried to... Our, our kids, every now and then, um, Eli and Savannah will ask. We'll just driving along. Then we get these weird conversations. When I pick them up from school and drive home, they'll ask something weird. Usually around the time we're going to go visit family or go back to Indiana. They'll say, Dad, how much longer are we going to live in Wyoming? Because Eli's moved from Indiana to West Virginia, and we were there six years, and now we've been here a year. And so he just kind of, it's not that he doesn't like any of you, or he doesn't like Wyoming. He just has in his head that wherever God calls us, we're going. So I always tell him what I tell everybody. We are 110% here for the rest of our lives until God changes that. Now, I have my own preference. I'd love to raise our kids here. I think it'd be great to have like a 30-year ministry in a church, not bounce around. I think that's good for a church. But I'm not in charge of that. I don't live that way. I live that this is it. This is my life forever until he says something different. Until he says something different. Well, he's not saying any of that to me, so don't get worried. I'm not leaving. Some, that might disappoint some of you, but you, you're stuck with me. That, but that you live a life like that. That if he's preeminent, he controls what you choose as a major. He controls what you choose as a job. He controls where you go to the neighborhood. He's put you in the neighborhood he's put you in for a reason. He's given you the skills to have the career you have for a reason. He's given you the spouse or the friends that you have for a reason. He's giving all these things to you for a reason. How are you going to utilize them? So we consistently see that he came for us. That he came for us. So we are going to teach the gospel over and over and over again, if this works. And I've, I've shared this before, just the four word, try to wrap your brain around the gospel as known to all of us. That God made this place. He made it, he made it perfect. He made it exactly how he intended it to be. Man messed it up. In our rebellion, we felt like we could run this. We can run this show. And we see in, in Romans chapter 1, God very clearly said, you think you got this? I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to turn you over to the depravity of your own mind. You go for it. How's that worked out for us? So that was his wrath. His wrath is saying, I'm going to let you have it your way. Thank you, Burger King. You get to have it your way. And everything else came unraveled. But he knew. He, man messed this up. He knew. He knew that the whole Old Testament, we see that it's a diagnostic tool. It's the diagnostic tool to prove to us that we can't do it on our own. And then Jesus comes and he's the remedy. He's the rescue. That all the fullness of God dwells in him. He's the rescue. And we submit our lives to him. We have a fullness of God that dwells in us in the Holy Spirit. We can tap into the same power that created the universe we can use to fight all of our temptation, all of our issues. We can trust him. And then we're called to respond. Will you submit your life to him? Will you humbly say, this is all yours. Every piece of the darkness of my heart is yours. How will you respond?
We're just, who else are you going to put your faith in? Some, some guru down the road who has some people listening to him? Or do you put your faith in the God of the Bible? Who are you going to put your faith in? So in light of that, the, you can't read the scriptures and not see that Jesus is going to take you right where you're at. No matter what you've done. No matter what your past is, no matter what your present is, he accepts you exactly as who you are with this free gift of grace. And then he comes to dwell and set up shop in your heart and help to carve you into the person he wants you to be, to live a life that consistently glorifies him and not yourself. He doesn't expect you to polish yourself up and then come to church. That's crazy. I mean, look around you. There's a bunch of people here that still aren't polished. and They've been at this for a long time. We're all a work in progress. We're all working towards our sanctification. We're all working towards being daily more like Jesus. So, you've got to know, there's nothing that you have done that keeps you away from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Nothing. We spent, as John mentioned, we spent during Advent leading through the Old Testament. You have Moses. You have Adam. Think about Adam. The guy that unraveled the whole thing. He didn't protect his wife. He was a co-conspirator in the rebellion against God. Adam unravels the whole thing. And yet he's been given grace and mercy. You got Moses. Like, just go down through the list of the Old Testament. Moses beats a guy to death with his bare hands. Runs from the law because of murder. God uses him. He's found faithful, we see in the scriptures. How about David? He sees a woman that's attractive. He doesn't just look or look too long or click what he shouldn't click. He says, I want that. Brings her into his house, takes her forcefully, then has her husband murdered, and yet... He's found faithful. How is that possible? Except the saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So you can't walk around here thinking you've done something that's so bad that God can't love you. You can't. If you feel that way, you're missing the gospel, but you're also using a level of illogical thinking that I can't fathom. You can't read this book and say, I've done something that God can't forgive. You can't. So that brings us to the topic of sanctity of life. And I know there's things you're not supposed to talk about with your family at the dinner table. Religion, politics, and both of those landed the same issue of abortion. We're not supposed to talk about this in church. Right? Well, I'm sorry we are. But you have to put it in the gospel. If you don't marry this to the gospel, you're, a f- you're failing. You're failing. If all you have is venom and condemnation for anyone who is thinking or on the road to or has had an abortion, then you are not showing them the light of Jesus Christ. But also, if we stand and say nothing, then we have a million to a million and a half children not breathing today, every year. That's horrific. But if we don't marry it with the gospel, we're fools. We have to show the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ as the reason we extend forgiveness to people, but it also because of the gospel and how Jesus is the glue that holds it all together that we care about life. Now, I don't want to... I'm pretty confident in um, current law and medicine and science that this issue, when my grandkids ask me about this about 30 years from now, when my grandchildren ask me about this, we will talk about abortion like we talk about slavery up to the 1860s. We'll discuss it the same way. It'll be proven to be wrong. It'll be wiped off the books. And we'll look back at it. Do you guys ever do that? I mean, I know as a history teacher, but do you ever look back and think of how our constitutional government came about? That the men who wrote the Constitution spent less than half a day debating, and they came to the conclusion that anybody who is of African descent is worth legally three-fifths of a real man. Don't all of you just look at that and go, how did that happen? How did, they, how did a bunch of white dudes sit in a room and come up with that a, a human being is only worth three-fifths of what they really are for voting rights? Don't we all just go, how does that even happen? That's where we'll be 30 to 40 years from now over the issue of abortion. When Roe v. Wade landed, um, 
There were two less justices than were supposed to be there. There's only seven. When you, the, a book came out two weeks ago, an investigative reporter went all over the papers of the justices. It was not a kosher legal case. I expect it to go all over again and before long. Think of what science has progressed. During the 1970s, viability was the only word used in the court case. They used viability. They could li- that this child could live outside the womb. That's happening at 21 weeks now. You, you know that, right? Like There's a little boy who's strong and feisty in West Virginia that he was born at 21 and a half weeks and he lived in the hospital and he's perfectly healthy and fine now. So the whole issue is, so why do we talk about it? Well, I want you to see the history behind it. I don't want to just talk, because you can't open this book and see that, it, that that's an okay practice for Christians. You can't see that. Science is laying it out a whole different way. So how, how do we get at this? How do we talk to people about this? Well, in the last few years, probably the last 30 or 40, we've wrapped it around, yes, tomorrow's um, celebration of civil rights. So it was changed. The goal of this effort by abortion activists, this is from an abortion historian, to remake the vocabulary with which Americans talked about abortion was to take attention off the abortion procedure and loss of life and instead make the issue about women's rights. So people would kind of talk about, well, this is a woman's right. It's kind of like the, in philosophy or in, if you take a, a logic class, it's, the, it's called the I, don't, the I don't like you objection. That because I'm a man, I shouldn't talk about this because truth exists outside of it. So we could say the same argument, that no woman could ever get upset about what a man does because you're not a man. You don't know my needs. You don't know what I like. You don't know what I need. So no woman should ever have a say in anything that a man does. So you play this same game. So what was happened is, I mean, think about the last 20 years, last 15 years. What do you do when you have a case that's politically hotbed? Whether it's gay marriage or it's polygamy in Utah, any of these issues, what do you do? You immediately attach the civil rights case to civil rights. So if you say, I believe life begins at conception, because science believes that too, and I believe viability shouldn't be the, the litmus test, so I think this should be wrong. Well, this is a woman's right. It's a right. What are you, a racist? Whoa, where'd that come from? Well, the civil rights. This is a civil rights issue. So marriage equality, this last year and a half, two years, think of the trajectory of how quickly that ran through the court system. We went from the federal government stating what marriage is to three weeks ago, a judge in Utah saying that polygamy is okay now. Which, if I was good at taking care of one wife, then maybe I'd add another one, but I don't think that's going to happen. And then what was it? You guys realize you live, you live in a representative republic. You don't live in a democracy. You know that, right? Like, you get to vote, but you elect a person who will make decisions for you. This isn't, we talk about democracy, but you don't vote. In Oklahoma just last week, laws are being overturned that the people decided. So, You've got to look outside all of this. How do we as a church respond? We respond with the gospel. They've changed it. Right now, immigration is the greatest civil rights, the civil rights issue of our generation. Six months ago, it was marriage equality. But because Mark Zuckerberg owns Facebook, and he's put it all over Facebook, now immigration is the greatest civil rights. All you have to do is attach the word civil rights, and now it becomes a political hotbed. Well, I think pastors should be free of all tax exemptions, or free of all taxes, exempt me from everything. That's the greatest civil rights issue that exists for our generation. Pastors have to pay taxes. I'm going to put that on Facebook, put it on Twitter, get a following, and then finally some Supreme Court will say, pastors shouldn't have to pay taxes. It's the greatest civil rights case of our generation. Right? Just say civil rights, and people go, oh, that's important. So I want to give you a history lesson, a short one. First, um, I don't know any biologist or any scientist that would say that life doesn't begin at, at conception. That when two, two pieces of DNA and half of the full chromosome of an individual collide and create a zygote, I don't know that anybody says that's not life. We find a drop of a bacteria on Mars. We're not sure if it's real. could have been the clean. It's a whole other story. And the, the headlines are, life found on Mars. It's bacteria. So why wouldn't we say this is... The, no one outside of science, I know two fertility doctors, one a friend of mine used, that when they were doing artificial insemination and they were um, having embryos implanted, the ones not used stay frozen. And this doctor 
will not allow them to be destroyed because he believes it's life. It's a frozen embryo. He will not allow it to be destroyed or used for scientific research because this is life. So even if you don't sign off to save him, you get him for a year, frozen, then you've got to pay for the long term, he will not destroy them. He can't say it publicly because it's going to get him in hot water, but he says, well, we just take care of it. So the nurse told my friend, he won't destroy him, he refuses, it's life. Then we have this idea of the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. So I want you to get that we have this seared conscience. So when Paul writes in 1 Timothy, we have a seared conscience. We believe it, we see it in Scripture, we know it in our hearts, but we're going to willfully choose to ignore that and go with our own way. So you have the, un- the Unborn Victims Act passed by George W. Bush in 2004. That, that's the Lacey Peterson rule. So she was thrown off a bridge by her husband and killed. He was charged with two cases of murder, for hers and for his unborn child. So now in this country, I think it's legal in at least 42 states, some states have different rules, that if you, in the commission of a crime, you kill a young woman who is pregnant, you'll be charged with two murders. So here's the scenario where you see a seared mind. It's illogical, makes no sense. It's why I think it all fall apart in the next 30 years. So you have in this country the right to terminate a pregnancy, but if you're driving to that clinic and a drunk driver collides with this young woman who's driving to go get an abortion and that baby dies, he'll be charged with manslaughter or at least secondary murder for that child. But if she had made it to the appointment and terminated the pregnancy then it's just a medical procedure. It's a seared conscience. Paul wrote about it again to Timothy in Ephesus, and he talked about how there's going to be a time coming where people are going to walk away from sound teaching, walk away from logic, walk away from reason, walk away from the scriptures, and they're going to try to find somebody that will tell them what they want to believe. Is that what we have today? If you come to me and say, I can't stand my spouse. Why? What's going on? She annoys me. Well, that, you can't just leave because she annoys you. I'm sure you annoy her. That's not, that's not a viable reason to enter into a divorce or enter into this. Well, yeah, it does. I can't stand her. She doesn't make me happy. I, I can't biblically say that that's okay. Let's get counseling. Let's work. Let's try to fight through this. I'm not talking to you, Mike. I'm going to go find a pastor that says it's okay. And that guy will find a pastor in this town or one close by that will come to him and, or we'll sit him down and go, oh, Jesus, he just wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy. You should be happy. Go ahead. Go for it. You'll find someone that says it's okay. We're going. We have itchy ears. We want to hear what we want to hear. So when someone stands up and says it's about Jesus, not about you, I don't want that. I want to go to the guy that has books with big pearly white teeth and says it's all about me. It's all about me. It's about you finding happiness and you being the best person now. And that's what I want. I like that guy. Why do you think he's got 20,000 people going to his church every week? He never mentioned sin, redemption, or the gospel. Of course he's going to have tons of people there. We could pack the house with that message. You're going to go listen to whoever you want to listen to. And we're going to have a... You can't, you can't read this book and come to me and say that extramarital affairs are okay. You can't come to this book and say that premarital sex is okay. You can't read this book and say it's okay to just murder people because you don't like You can't get that out of here. You can't get it. But how often do we sear our conscience and say, well, I know it's what it says, but I think God's okay with this over here. Right? Isn't that what we do constantly? We have a seared conscience. So I want to show you some history. Out of a couple books. One is just, it's called Abortion, The Ultimate Exploitation of Women. And the subtitle is, um, Men Started It, Men Oppressed With It, Men Can End It. And this is a history of abortion in this country, that it was a man-created idea, and all of the women who fought for equal rights in the early 1900s and for the right to vote, they were all adamantly opposed to abortion. But it all shifted because of a seared conscience in the last 40 years. And the other book is The Unbound, uh, the Unaborted Socrates. And I showed you one of his books before. And Peter Kreft, a classical Greek scholar, he's also a Christian, but he's a classical Greek teacher. He takes this issue and he, he applies logic and reason. Just how would the Socratic method look at this system? And so I can argue all day long about the sanctity of life from the scriptures. 
But if you have a seared conscience, you're going to say, that guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know the Bible's been translated, it's been done this, it's done this, and this. You're going to have a seared conscience, and you're going to reject anything that's said out of the Scriptures. People are like that constantly. You go to them and say, Jesus loves your baby. Jesus doesn't want this. This isn't okay. There's grace in this if you've done it already. There's mercy for you if you put your life in the hands of Jesus. But this isn't okay. How do you know? It's not mentioned in the Bible. People have a seared conscience about Scripture. So you need to have a better understanding. What about history? What about logic and reason? All of them point that this is a, an act as a country we do that's barbaric. It started... Um, as a women's rights issue, fighting against it. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was one of the forerunners of women's rights, fought for a woman's right to vote, fought for a woman's right of equality. She was huge in the movement in the early 1900s. She says about it, abortion is to be classed as with the killing of, of newborns as infanticide. There must be a remedy even for such a crying evil as this. But where shall it be found? At least where to begin, if not in the complete enfranchisement and elevation of women. So she saw abortion as evil, and the way to stop it is to give women rights. And this would go away. If women had rights, this would just fade away. Susan B. Anthony. You know you've got a silver dollar with her face on it, right? Fighter for women's rights. A fighter for the right for women to be equal, equal pay, equal status. She's teaching the Bible. Not only she didn't even knew it. That we as Christians teach the Imago Dei. That we're all given the image of God. That we have equal dignity, men and women. One is not better than the other. We teach that we all are image bearers of God. So any time that there's subjugation or someone thinks one gender is better than the other, it goes against the very nature of who we are in Jesus Christ. She said it this way. I despise the horrible crime of child murder. We want prevention, not merely punishment. We must reach the root of the evil. It, abortion, is practiced by those whose inmost souls revolt from the dreadful deed. All the articles on this subject that I have read have been from men. They denounce women as alone guilty and never include man in any plans for the remedy. No matter what the motive, love or, or ease or desire to save from suffering the unborn innocent, the woman is awfully guilty who commits the deed. But... Oh, thrice guilty is he who drove her to the desperation which impelled her to the crime. It was an overwhelming women's rights issue. That men created this, men pushed it, men forced it, men went for it, and it's a man's fault. So the initial beginnings of the women's rights movement was, we've got to stop this. We have to stop this. Alice Paul, who drafted the Equal Rights Amendment in 23... Opposed it. She called it the ultimate exploitation of women. In an editorial in the New York Times in 1870, the editor and the person who ran the New York Times wrote an article called The Least of These Little Ones. He protested that the perpetration of infant murder is rank and smells to heaven. Why is there no hint of its punishment? He commissioned an investigation in which a reporter and lady friend visited abortionists posing as a couple in need of their services. The resulting report told readers that thousands of human beings are murdered before they have seen the light of this world. The New York Times began as a newspaper with an editorial staff that was fighting against this. This kind of changed in the last hundred years, hasn't it? So historically, this issue was seen as hurtful to women. How quickly did that change? Because everywhere else you put it in, it's a woman's right. It's a woman's right. It's a woman's right. But women fought against this. So what happened? That's why I showed you the marketing thing at the beginning. If you want to change the language and get people behind it, change the marketing. So men are pushing women towards this. Men are fighting for laws for this to become legal. And so what do you do? You change it to be a woman's right. It's a woman's right. It's a woman's right. So you, you change the language. It's still an oppressive male endeavor. What's even more scary is that Margaret Sanger, the founder of the Birth Control Leagues and um, eventually the Planned Parenthood, she was a, a proponent and a member of the eugenics movement. Which eugenics is a study of genetics that says that we can make the race better if we just cut off all the stuff that shouldn't be there. Now remember, this is early 1900s. 
this is the time of the rebirth. She spoke to the women's um, auxiliaries of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, the Ku Klux Klan had a resurgence in the early 1900s. It was very anti-immigrant. Anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, um, very much anti-Eastern European. Um, that, that was the movement of the Klan in the early 1900s. She spoke to them and talked about the importance of birth control. And some of the first birth control clinics she ever put out were in Harlem and in Brooklyn. She had a mission to stop the ever-growing wave of immigrants and people that weren't white from growing in this country. That was her goal. Her goal wasn't reproductive freedom. Her goal was we, she took some of the, the population growth models. She was terrified. We're going to water down the white race. Some of her research and the work in California, this extended into anybody with a mental illness was forcibly sterilized. If you had a mental disorder, 60,000 people in California in a two-year period um, in the 1930s were sterilized so they could never have kids. If you went to, for a mental illness, you got sterilized because there's no way we want any more of your children, any of your genes in our gene pool. This work was picked up out of the eugenics movement and it was taken over to Germany. What do you think they did with it? It's called World War II and the Holocaust. The idea that we must have a pure race. It was began in this country, in the eugenics movement, and Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was part of it. She's quoted as saying, We want to rid society of human weeds. We must clear the way for a better world. We must cultivate our garden. In her book, The Pivot of Civilization, sterilization was an even better option, since segregation carried out for one or two generations would give us only partial control of the problem. We prefer the policy of immediate sterilization, of making sure that parenthood is absolutely prohibited to the feeble-minded. Only the intelligent should have. And it got, at first she was seen as crazy. And then she worked into the middle class. She used fears of racism, and it went crazy. So the birth of a woman's right to choose is in a eugenics movement that says, we are going to craft our society. That we can't have you simple-minded, unintelligent, non-Caucasian people muddying our genetic pool. I don't really hear that talked about in today's political circles. But we like to forget our historical past like that. That the movement was about creating a perfect race. And then it all shifted. It all shifted again. In the 60s, you had... The revolution of sexual freedom, the Kinsey Institute out of Indiana University. I'm not proud of having any connections to that university just because of this guy sometimes. He does all this research. That leads to, re- that leads to Hugh Hefner going, it's time. It's time to have some sexual freedom. Let's just put some magazines out there. Bunch of men fight for Roe v. Wade. You have uh, Ronald Reagan when he's governor. He approves, and Nixon too, thought it was awesome, approves no-fault divorce. So you have from 1960 until now... Marriage is cheap. If you have sex and the birth control doesn't work, then just kill it. If you don't like your wife, leave. Don't, don't talk to me about this stuff. This is my own idea. This is, I'm, I've got my own heart, my own mind. I'm going to think about it. I have a seared conscience, and I am never going to submit my life to the authority of Scripture. Because I'm smarter than you, Mike. I'm smarter than those guys. The disciples didn't even have college degrees. I'm smarter than them. We have a seared conscience. In the last few months, Austria has pushed pushed a eugenics model to you can now euthanize children with abnormalities. So if if you have a child, a child is born in your home and has some physical ailment or an abnormality, you can euthanize it. Legal medical termination of a life outside of the womb. The American Disabilities Act, the people are all over this. When people are getting sonograms and choosing, well, my kid's going to have a disability, it's no longer a real child. What's that say about everyone who's in a wheelchair or born with a physical abnormality today? At what point do you not become viable anymore? If that's our case, if that's our our litmus test, the viability of life, how many people do you know can't live without their medication they're on? Their hearts stop, they can't function. They have more strokes, more seizures. How many people do you know can't function with... That's the course we're running down. 
The original proponents of eugenics wanted to put, in the early 1900s and 1920s, they wanted to have, in major metropolitan areas, local gas chambers so they could take out the local riffraff that shouldn't be around. Who do you think picked up that idea? It's born out of wickedness. Don't think it's just about a right. And men, how much of it is our fault? When we refuse to protect our women, we refuse to protect our daughters, we refuse to protect those we love dearly. Instead, we want cheap sex, cheap marriage, and easy out. That's on us. When you have male politicians, male magazine leaders supporting things and leading to it, and so now you have, and think how they switch the marketing. It's a woman's right. So now the men who started this in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they take a step back and go, they're doing it for us. You have to understand that this isn't just about a right. Science is on the side that this is life. We look at the idea of viability. That's going to be shrunk more and more and more. We have medical procedures happening where they take the womb, take the uterus out of the mom, open up the uterus, do surgery. You've all seen the picture. This little 20-month-old little boy reaches up and grabs the doctor's finger, stuffs it back in, sews it up, puts the womb back in, fixes his kidneys, puts the, puts the, the uterus back in the mom, sews her up, and she delivers full term. So you could say that's not life? That we shouldn't, shouldn't matter to us? Now, I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you what to do. What I am telling you to do is you've got to speak the truth of the gospel to every corner that's dark like this. We will not have a picket sign making day at the church. It's not happening. There's an organization in town, heart to heart, that fights for women to have all the right options, all the right knowledge. Because they're not getting that. The core roots of an organization began in eugenics. Do you think they're going to give you all the information? Of course not. People have a seared conscience. We have got to speak the truth of the gospel. So when someone comes to you, last week, um, Matt Chandler at the Village Church in Texas, you can go download his sermon and listen to it. He had a an amazing job of talking about the sanctity of life. And in his church, there's a young woman um, who got pregnant and she was considering ending the pregnancy. So in her small group at this church, they, the young women, they wrapped their arms around her and said, why don't you come live with us? Because she's worried about job. It's inconvenient. The guy's a, a jerk. She shouldn't have even been with him, but she was. She, he's not going to take any responsibility. How's she supposed to work and go to school and do all these things? They said, come live with us. We'll take care of all of your expenses. You have to pay for rent. We'll take care of food. Just come be with us. So she did, and she still said, I, I can't do this. I'm not ready for this. I can't do it. So she was on her way to, she just got in here in a sermon about how Jesus is in control. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen for him to act. Wait for him to act. Listen. She drives to the clinic, and about halfway there, she turns around and comes home and says, I think I should probably listen to Jesus. So in this church, she's not going to keep the baby. She's going to put it up for adoption. But there's another family in one of the other satellite campuses that's going to adopt this child. Because through this small group, they're all connected. They all know. They, they open up the door. So this, these, these young women are taking in this other woman until she has her baby, care for her, take care of her. She has no one to help her. And then that baby's going to be given a home over here. That's the gospel. Are you really willing to speak this in the lives of all the people around our neighborhood and all around our community that desperately need the gospel? It's not enough just to say, I'll make a picket sign. Do you really think that's what Jesus would have done? I just showed you his preeminence. I just showed that, that he's God in flesh, that he's a, the fullness of God dwelt in him. How did he deal with sinners? He loved them right where they were at. Even if you make a horrible decision, Jesus is right there. So if you come to my office and You've got a daughter, or it's you, and you're worried, and there's a baby coming, you can't handle it, what are we going to do? I am not going to just go, uh, you clearly got to keep this baby. I'm not going to say that, of course, but how can we help? How can we do this? Is it something you don't want? Is it something that you're not ready for? Well, then let's find an option. Let's get some people to wrap around. There's people in this church that have spoken and hinted about adoption. Well, maybe now it's time that the Spirit will speak to them and speak to you and make this happen.
And if that young woman walks out of my office and goes anyway down in Colorado and she comes back broken from it, as every statistic says that every woman comes back broken, then I'll sit her down and I will share with her the gospel of Jesus Christ. She'll have no guilt, no shame, no condemnation. She'll hear the truth of the gospel if she would submit her life to Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we do with everything? After a divorce, after an affair, after embezzlement, after a crime, in the jail. Isn't that what we do with everything? We preach the gospel. So that's what we're going to do with this issue. We're going to rescue as many kids as we can. We're going to be active and involved in rescuing children. But we're also going to be active and involved in sharing the gospel through every piece of it. And I am fully certain, I can give you the articles, I can show you the research, I can show you the great theological masters that have written it, that all of these children are going to be waiting for their parents in heaven, whether their parents are ready for it or not. That a child that dies in a miscarriage or an abortion is wrapped in the arms of Jesus and is in heaven. I have zero doubt about it. So think about that day. where a child that wasn't wanted is now going to run up and see their parents. And then the mystery is, if the scriptures are true, and I believe they are, there is no guilt or condemnation in heaven, and so these families will be rejoined. I don't want to put a stamp of grace on going and doing that, but it's the truth. But we're to fight for life. We're to fight for the least of these. We're to fight for truth. Tomorrow, civil. I would hope and pray that if we all flash back to the 1960s, that all of us would get on a bus and we'd go down to Alabama and we'd fight in the civil rights movement. We'd be beaten, we'd, be pro, we'd protest, and we'd help our brothers and sisters of color. And most of you, if we asked that of you, you would do it. Of course we're going to fight against this. This is wrong, of course. What if this is our civil rights movement? I don't mean picketing. Just please, don't beat people who have the Bible and say, Mike says that this is wrong. I don't think you can read this book honestly. Read the Word of God and come to the conclusion that it's okay to ignore millions of children that are perishing. But I also don't think it's okay, and I don't think it justifies in here, violent protest leading to all kinds of animosity. We are to preach the love of Jesus Christ to those who are in a dark place, those who have been in a dark place, and show them the blood and mercy of Jesus Christ on the cross pays for all sins, past, present, and future. That there's nothing that separates you from the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. And we call people to come and love. And to love Him, and Him love you, and to fill you like you've never been filled before. The gospel on both ends. The gospel is what we sit under because He came for us, and the gospel is what we proclaim even to the dark places where desperate women make desperate decisions, uninformed and with no one to care for them. We've got to care for them before they make that decision and even after. Because we're about Jesus. He's everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word that clearly shows us that you're the centerpiece of all creation and that you're everything that we need to cling to. You're all that matters. That you came willfully to be put on a cross to die for our sins so that we could have redemption and be the glory of God forever. And Lord, if, um, if any statistics are true, then there are men and women in this room that have either walked through an abortion or been on the brink um, or thinking about it even now. Or they have family members or people around them. And I pray, Lord, that they would hear clearly from your word that that child matters. But I also don't want want people leaving with guilt and condemnation, Lord, that the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is for all. So anyone that's been through that, that's carrying around the scars of of terminating a pregnancy, that they would find peace and grace and mercy here from you. And I pray, Lord, as a church, 
that when you encounter people that are deep in sin, that desperately need the love and mercy of you, that we would be your hands and feet. You're the head of the church, but we're the hands and the feet. And that we would do the hard work, the messy work of living lives with people who need us. Then we would see the glory just flow from you being central in everything. And pray for families, even outside of this room, that have been in difficult situations. They've made decisions that they felt were the right decisions at the time. I pray for grace and mercy to pour on them. We see throughout every exit interview and every research done the terror that lives in the wake of deciding to terminate a pregnancy. And I desperately want to help people rescue from that. But only you can do it. So Lord, in this room, if you've today's the first day you've spoken into someone's heart, you've opened them to the truth of your love, then I pray that they would share that with someone. They could grow, like Colin we prayed for earlier, a new believer that's going to grow in faith and grow to love you. My Lord, if anyone's walking out a little um, offended, they don't get it, and they think the crazy preacher just laid out a bad sermon, um, I pray that you would drive them to your word. That you would open up their conscience and you would show them the truth of your word. That you care about all life. And you want all life to bring glory to your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen.